pray and let's get started here tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you that we can gather together and learn more about your word and that we can look deeply into the things that you have for us in the future. And Lord, there may be difficult things said tonight. And Lord, I ask that you would cover over us and allow us to realize that no matter if we're pre-wrath, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever position we have, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ through faith in your Son. And Lord, we ask that you would help us understand these things. And we ask that you would give us unity. And so now, Lord, we ask that you would speak through the Scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to be starting eschatology. And I like definitions, so I thought I would start off with the definition of eschatology. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last things. You actually see that noun in Daniel 2.28 in the Septuagint. But let me give you my homemade definition. What is eschatology? Eschatology is the study of last things pertaining to the rapture of the church, resurrection of the dead, second coming of Christ, the kingdom coming to Israel, the eternal state of both the lost and the saved, and the eternal reign of God. That's what we're going to be focused in on this course. Before I finish or get started into the rest of the slides, too, I just want to make a statement. Tonight, I've got a lot of material to cover, and so I'm going to hold all the comments and questions until the end. We'll probably have 20 minutes. However, this is Bob's material, too. A lot of his research went into this, and so I want him to be able to interject when he wants. So if there's going to be any comments, it's going to be from Bob. (laughs) Just until the end, because I want to make sure we get through this so we can present our material But then I'd be more than happy at the end to take questions and comments. And I think we'll have plenty of time. So with that, I'm just going to keep rolling. That is the definition of eschatology, and that's what we're going to be studying this evening. Now, why are we studying this now? Many of you may be wondering that. Initially, I was tasked to actually start an Old Testament survey course, which I was very excited about. However, as you know, recent interest by pre-rathers have kind of changed our mind. Recent interest by friends and colleagues in the pre-wrath tribulation camp sparked my interest, and I know they did with Bob and Keith and and Dick as well and others here. And so we wanted to re-examine eschatology. Now, I initially, to be honest with you, was quite smitten with the pre-wrath view, especially their understanding of 2 Thessalonians 2, until I started studying deeper into 2 Thessalonians. And then I started realizing there were problems, in my opinion, with the pre-wrath view. Okay, does that all make sense? But I want to be straightforward and honest. We started delving into it to say, hey, maybe the pre-wrath has a point. And the more we studied the case that they had, the more we found it falling flat. But the big trouble is here. We became troubled to find out that at the outset that some of our pre-wrath brothers and sisters were claiming that one's position on the rapture was essential to salvation. Now, I know I have brothers and sisters here tonight that are in the pre-wrath camp. And they wouldn't hold that. They don't maintain that one's salvation is at stake. So I'm not making a blanket statement. It is only a few. But what our claim is is that the timing of the rapture and the debate related to the timing of the rapture should in no way divide Christians and in no way is a salvific issue. Okay? So therefore, we felt compelled that we had to get into this issue. The other thing is we wanted to do is we wanted to give our perspective on eschatology from a premillennial, which pre-wrath shares, and a pre-tribulational perspective. Because the more we studied, the more we found the pre-tribulational understanding of the timing of the rapture to bear fruit and merit. Okay, 
Now, the best thing, though, is no matter what view we're coming at it with, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, the big thing is we're going to know more about the promises of God. And that's the exciting thing. And we all are sharing in those promises no matter when the rapture happens. When the rapture happens, we'll know it. We'll be looking at each other on the way up in an ascent, right? A thousand feet per minute, okay? So that's why we wanted to get into this study now. Why this debate matters? What debate am I referring to? I'm referring to the debate between pre-trib and pre-wrath. In and of itself, to be honest with you, I didn't really care much about whether it's pre-wrath or pre-trib. Now, I care in the sense that every doctrine is precious, every doctrine in the Scripture is important, but let's be honest, there are some doctrines that are more important than others, right? Well, the reason why this debate matters, and again, we have to get into it now, is because of claims from men like Alan Kirshner. Alan Kirshner has a site called prewrath.com, and on his website, he has an article entitled, Someone's Eschatology Does Not Affect Their Soul, or So They Say. And immediately, everything on this slide, by the way, comes from him, except why this debate matters. He immediately on this slide, on his, or I should say on his website, he put up Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Let me read it. It says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be transformed with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Friends, make no mistake about it. What's being declared there in Revelation 14 is if you take that mark, you will go to perdition. You will suffer eternal damnation. Okay? Now hold on to that concept because in the very next slide, we see Kirshner make the statement right after he quotes Revelation 14. He asks this question. He says, Who will be more prepared for this test? The person who is taught that this test will be applied to the church and thus must have faith to endure, that of course would be pre-wrath, or the person who is taught that the church will be swept away in beds of ease before the Antichrist uses the mark as a test of loyalty, that of course would be pre-trib. Now notice there is a straw man argument that I would take issue with here. It's right here. As pre-tribbers that we somehow believe that we're swept away in beds of ease. I know I'm speaking for myself, and I think I can speak for Bob. We don't believe that we're going to be swept away in beds of ease. Just this week, we had 500 Christians that were hacked to death with machetes in Africa. Did they get out on beds of ease? My uncle's body was racked with cancer. He was a believer. Did he get out on a bed of ease? We had world vision. Didn't they get blown up this week? Six people dead in Pakistan. They didn't get out on beds of ease, did they? Friends, the death rate is one per person. And it is very likely that that death could be excruciating and painful and we will not get out of life alive. And so only those who are alive till the Lord comes are going to find relief. Okay? The one thing that we believe that we're promised exemption from, according to Revelation 3.10, is the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world. Other than that, you can expect severe persecution, hatred, murder, disfigurement, Being a Christian is a dangerous business, and we would affirm that. So this is a straw man argument. A straw man argument is designed to put something up that your opponent doesn't really believe so you can just knock it down, okay? That is not what we believe. Bob. And there will be Christians who are in the Great Tribulation, okay, which we've said from the beginning. That's right. Because they're from every tribe and tongue. They'll all be new Christians if there is a pre-trib rapture. 
But every one of those who is truly a Christian is sealed by God. Amen. And they will not take that mark. Amen. And the reason they will not take the mark is the grace of God working in their lives. That's right. Everybody that becomes a Christian, is there's millions of Bibles in the world, millions and millions and millions. That's right. And people know what it says in here. They even make Hollywood movies about it. Yeah. And so whoever is a Christian during the tribulation is going to very well know what the stakes are. Amen. And they'll, be, and they'll have grace from God. That's right. The elect cannot and will not take that mark. Yeah. Amen. That's right. Let me talk about who saves us. John 10, 27 through 29. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. And of course, that hearing, a kuo, is in a salvific way. And he says, And I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. That construction here, they shall never perish, has an ume in the Greek, which is a negative. And then it has what's called an aorist subjunctive. The subjunctive mood has to do with probability. It is the strongest way in the Greek that you can negate something because what he's doing is he's negating even the possibility of perishing. It could be literally rendered and they shall never have the possibility of perishing. Okay, that's strong. All right, and who has done that? Well, God has done that for us. And he says, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Friends, is the Antichrist, would he fall within the category of anyone and no one? Yes, he would. And according to Romans 8.39, nothing created can separate us from the love of Christ. Is the Antichrist something created? Yes, he is. The only non-contingent eternal being is God. Everything else is, and everybody else is created. And therefore, not the Antichrist not the false prophet. No one can separate us from the love of Christ. And therefore, the elect is eternally secure. And if they truly have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, they never will ever take the mark of the beast. Okay? First Peter 1.5, Peter writes this, talking about believers. He says, The believers are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Friends, Jesus, according to Hebrews 12.2, he is the author and perfecter of our faith and he is faithful and he will bring it to completion so friends we are eternally secure the saints in fact will persevere now kirshner goes on to say that god uses means and bob and i agree that god does use the scripture as means but it's in the way that the scriptures or i should say in the way that god uses the scriptures to keep us persevering that we disagree on okay let me read what kirshner says He says, God uses biblical teaching and exhortation on this subject, that is eschatology, as a means to prepare believers if God calls them to be that generation, not to mention it spiritually prepares them in present trials. Friends, Bob and I agree that the word of God are a means of grace whereby reading the word of God, first of all, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It also enables us to persevere, but it does that by alerting us and keeping us informed and helping us remember who Christ is and the promises he has given. It does not do so by informing us on the timing of the rapture. Do you see the distinction? That is the major distinction that needs to be made. And so what we can do as pre-trib proponents is we can actually take Alan Kirshner's argument and we can turn it on its head And we can say that the pre-rathers are not as prepared. Now, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, 
Because again, my pre-wrath brothers and sisters, I believe, are every bit as prepared to meet Christ as I am. But just think about this text in tongue-in-cheek fashion, Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who should we not fear? Well, we should not fear anybody but God. Only God can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, according to the pre-tribulation view, who do we meet first? We meet Jesus first. And he is the one that we should fear. But according to the pre-wrath view, we meet the tribulation of men and Satan first. Well, we shouldn't fear them anyway. Are you with me? We shouldn't fear them anyway. Again, if we're going to take Matthew 10:28 and we're going to apply that to our lives, should we in fact be fearing the wrath of men or the wrath of God? Well, certainly the wrath of God. Now, again, I'm saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I'm showing that we can take the scriptures and say you're not as prepared as well. But again, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're as prepared to meet God as I am. Okay, And you're a brother and sister in the Lord. What we're called to from the scriptures, what the scriptures inform us on is who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what God will do for us. And so the way the scriptures are used by God as a means of grace is they inform us about who our great God and Savior is and also about what he has done for us and what he will do. And so it's about believing the promises of God. That is how, in fact, we persevere. And we see examples of this, for instance, in Hebrews 11:24 through 27, where Moses is used in the faith hall of fame, if you will, where the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Right here is a causal conjunction. This conjunction for indicates how he was able to suffer this affliction. He did so because he looked forward to the reward. He didn't do so because he knew the timing of the rapture. Okay? He did so because he looked forward to the reward of Messiah and the messianic blessings that followed. Okay? That's the means of grace, and that's how the word of God enables us to persevere. And it goes on. It says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Again, you don't fear the wrath of men, for he endured as seeing him, that is God, who is invisible. Okay? You think about Abraham. He's used as an example by Paul in Romans 4.21. Do you remember that? Everybody turn your Bible, if you will, to Romans 4. Let me just start in verse 20, just for the sake of time. Romans 4.20. This is how Abraham persevered. It's talking about the seed promise. It says, Yet with the respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And this is perseverance, friends, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Friends, that's exactly what the Word of God does. That's how it enables us to persevere, and that's how it functions as a means of grace. It doesn't do so by proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that the timing of the rapture is one place in the 70th week versus another. Okay, So let me show you the things that we agree on. We have so much in agreement. Why divide? We agree that there's going to be a rapture of the church. The disagreement is just on when. We agree on the bodily return of Christ, the bodily resurrection of believers into glory. We all believe in the bodily resurrection of unbelievers into the eternal lake of fire. 
the millennial reign of Christ on earth, Israel as the nation that God will restore his kingdom to, Jerusalem being the capital, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem in the eternal states. We all agree on these things. So the issue is why divide? We believe in the same promises. And we can be fully assured, just as Abraham was, that God is able to deliver on what he has promised. So, friends, we believe in the same rewards. Now, with that, I'm going to talk about the area of disagreement. And this is where we get the charts out and we get the timelines out and it gets a little messy. But what I'm going to do on this timeline is up above, I'm going to have, this is Daniel's 70 week. Is everybody familiar with Daniel's 70th week? That is the final seven years that happens according to the scriptures in Daniel chapter 9 before the kingdom of God comes and it is still in our future. Okay, we all agree on that. So up above here, I'm going to show, this is the beginning of the 70th week, this is the end of it, and this is according to the pre-wrath view. Down here will be the pre-trib view. According to the pre-wrath view, they believe the 70th week starts off with the beginning of birth pangs. We would agree with that. Uh, The beginning of the birth pangs continue until the midpoint of the tribulation. At the midpoint, you have the Antichrist setting himself up in the temple, creating the abomination that causes desolation spoken about in Daniel 9 and Matthew 24:15. at that time that ushers in the great tribulation. So far, so good. We agree. Now, here's where we disagree. They believe that the rapture occurs between the sixth and seventh seal. Okay, and that would be the rapture of the church. The pre-wrath view is that there is no wrath of God anywhere in the tribulation period until after the rapture. After the rapture, The day of the Lord comes, and there will be no believers on earth during this period, and it is during this period that God pours his wrath for the first time in the eschatological sense on the earth. Are you with me? Yeah, Bob. Would pre-wrath teaching also say that the 144,000 are going to still be there and protected from wrath? Because there's got to be some people going into the millennium that are Jewish people that are mortal. Yeah, um, Mike, do you have... uh, the um, churches, according to pre-wrath, is raptured when Jesus comes on the clouds between the sixth and seventh seals. Yep. In chapter 7 of Revelation, the first part is the sealing of the 144,000. Yeah. The second part is the scene of the church, according to pre-wrath, in heaven after they have been raptured. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter 8... The beginning of the the beginning of the uh, the seventh seal, which is uh, the start of the trumpet judgments. Okay. Yeah, they they okay. are they are not raptured. Okay. Good. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. So the deal is here. What distinguishes their view primarily from ours is that there's no wrath during this period, and that the rapture happens between the sixth and seventh seal. Okay. Then the day of the Lord is ushered in. And then that day of the Lord extends to the 1335th day after the midpoint, according to Daniel 12. Remember, there was a 1290 days and a 1335-day extension in Daniel chapter 12. They believe the day of the Lord extends all the way to the 1335-day mark. Okay. Now let me show you the pre-trib view. We believe the next thing on God's eschatological calendar is the rapture of the church. That also ushers in the beginning of birth pains. I wouldn't disagree with calling it that. That would extend until the midpoint of the tribulation. Antichrist sets himself up in the temple. 
that ushers in the great tribulation, but we believe that the wrath of God is present during the entire tribulation period, in fact, beginning at the 70th week all the way through, and it just gets worse and worse. We believe that what happens is the great tribulation will last until the end of the 70th week. Jesus Christ comes at his second coming. He sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two. He'll destroy the Antichrist with the appearance of his parousia, his coming. And he will then usher in the kingdom to Israel. And so we believe that there are two bodily parousias or comings. One is at the beginning for the church. One is at the beginning with the church. Okay? I'm, I'm sorry, at the end. Yeah, I said beginning twice. Yeah. Now, the day of the Lord, we believe that the day of the Lord, this is another big difference. The day of the Lord, again, for pre-wrath begins at the rapture. We believe the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week. One of the reasons we believe that is because in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3, it talks about people saying, while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. And in context, that's referring to the day of the Lord. Well, how could you have peace and safety when you up here, think about it, you've gone through wars on the fourth seal where a quarter of the earth has lost its population. Certainly people aren't going to be crying peace and safety. Okay, So why would the day of the Lord start here? More than likely, we're saying that it starts here. And it extends, according to Second Peter 3, all the way into the millennial kingdom. And we'll be talking about these passages. Okay, But now, friends, that's the day of the Lord in the broad perspective. We believe there's also what's called the narrow day of the Lord or the day of the Lord par excellence, the one 24-hour period that God has promised that would be unique in history where God himself, in the form of the Messiah, would come down and fight for his people and vanquish his enemies. And we see evidence of that, for instance, in Zechariah 14.6. This is the narrow day of the Lord. It happens at the end of the 70th week. And in Zechariah 14.6, it talks about a unique day a day that's known only to the Lord, where in evening it'll still be light. Okay, And I'm going to show you how Zechariah 14, Malachi 4, 5, and Joel chapter 2 through 3 are talking about the single great and terrible day, this 24-hour day of the Lord, where the Messiah comes and fights for his people, vanquishing their enemies. So again, we're, we're dividing primarily on our understanding of the day of the Lord and the rapture. Okay, the timing of the rapture. Those are where the major differences in. And, and obviously when we have wrath. Again, we believe wrath starts right away. Okay, Now, the reason why I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you four pre-wrath contradictions that I believe make the pre-wrath position untenable. The reason why I'm doing that is because I don't want you to think that me and Bob are just contrarians. Okay, We would gladly have accepted the pre-wrath position if the evidence merited it. Okay, And so what I'm going to be showing you is some of the research that we have done that I think refutes the, the pre-wrath. The first problem that pre-wrath has is it's a problem with parousia. Parousia is the Greek term that means coming, and sometimes it means presence. Now, the thing that pre-wrath is going to latch on to is the idea that it always means coming with presence. Okay, that is a huge definition. Now, let me show you what Marv Rosenthal, he is a pre-wrath proponent. He has written a book called The Pre-wrath Rapture of the Church. Listen to what he writes. He says, Christ's coming, or parousia, will be seen in the heavens, that is his glory, not his bodily form. Let me stop there. I don't think that every pre-wrath person believes that Jesus doesn't descend bodily here. I'm not sure. We can ask Mike maybe later. But I want to keep rolling here. I have an issue with that. And the issue is this. The way parousia is going to be used in the New Testament in the eschatological context of Christ's coming is that he's coming bodily. 
And if he doesn't come bodily, then our viewpoint is no different than the Jehovah Witnesses that said he came spiritually in 1914. When Jesus comes, he's coming bodily. And I'm going to show you grammatically how we can actually prove that. Okay? Well, let me continue. It says, and there will be continuous presence. And that's a huge thing with pre-wrath. For the purpose of rapturing the church and judging the wicked. When men today speak of Christ's first coming, it is not restricted to his birth alone. Rather, it includes the Annunciation to Mary, the Incarnation, His growth before men and God, His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. All of this comprises His first coming. So what Marv Rosenthal is doing is he's making the analogy between the first coming, where you had one coming of Christ bodily, right? But then there were many facets to his life. There was a virgin birth, and then he grew up, and he confounded the wisdom of the scribes, and he walked on water, healed the sick, and raised the dead, and he did all these things. These are all facets of his one coming. Okay, They liken that to the second coming. There's going to be one coming, but with many different facets. And therefore, you can say that there's only one parousia, one coming. Is everybody with me? That's the analogy they're making. But as I'm going to show you, This is equivocation. Now, what is equivocation? Well, equivocation is where we use a term with two different definitions. Let me show you how this works. Again, pre-wrath's parousia analogy would be as follows. And by the way, I know Robert Van Campen. He is the originator of this view. He would hold to this analogy. I know Ryan Habanaugh. He holds to this analogy because I've talked to him on the phone. It's in his book. I think Marv Rosenthal holds to it, obviously, as well, because we just read that. So this is what most pre-wrath people believe, that this analogy between the first and second coming is poignant. So remember, first coming, Jesus, they believe, comes bodily, remains bodily, and does many wondrous things. No problems with that. But here comes the equivocation. In second coming, Jesus comes bodily, but he remains spiritually and does many wondrous things. Okay, well, wait a minute. That's a change. How can you have a parousia where Christ is only there spiritually? Okay, remember, according to Matthew 18.20, Jesus says, wherever two or three gather in my name, I am there in their midst. If Christ being here spiritually can be defined as the parousia, you and I are living now during the parousia. We could claim that. And the Jehovah Witnesses have. Okay, friends, that is equivocation on how the New Testament understands the parousia. The parousia is a bodily return for Christ either to get his church or to punish his enemies with the church. Okay, that's how it's used. So let me show you how the parousia is seen in the New Testament scriptures. I'm going to show you the semantic range. The semantic range means what is the range of meaning that parousia can mean? It typically means either coming or presence. That, that is the Greek term. Now, realize oftentimes in the New Testament it either means one or the other. What the pre-wrath position is, is that it always must mean both coming and presence. Well, as I'm going to show you in how it's used here in the New Testament, that's nonsensical. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, listen to what Paul says. He says, for they say, he's addressing, mind you, his critics, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Friends, would it make any sense if he would say, but his bodily coming with presence is weak? Well, of course not. We don't talk like that. He's just, he's present. He's there. He is, he's already arrived. Okay? So saying coming with presence would be nonsensical that we see the same thing in Philippians 2.12. Just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, it would make no sense there to say not only in my coming with presence. And he goes on, he says, but much more in my, we wouldn't say leaving with absence. Right? That would be nonsensical. 
He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So clearly, friends, parousia here is used, and it only means presence. It doesn't mean coming with presence continuously all the time as pre-wrath maintains. Now let me show you some texts where coming is emphasized. Matthew 24, 3, the disciples have seen Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple, and they ask the two questions. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your parousia and the end of the age? Obviously, they're asking about when the arrival of Christ will happen because when Jesus arrives, he's there. They don't have to ask, when is your coming with presence? It's obvious. When you pick up the phone and ask people to come over, you don't ask them, by the way, what time is your coming with presence going to be? You just ask them when they're coming, right? It's implied. And and so that's how coming is used. Now, I'm going to show you another text, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 16, one of the chair passages for the rapture. And I'm going to show you here parousia is used again with the physical bodily coming of the Lord. Paul writes, he says, We who are alive and remain until the parousia, the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Friends, notice this Lord himself. That is what's called an adjectival intensive. It means that autos, which is a pronoun, is intensifying the Lord. So you can't be a surrogate of the Lord, an angel of the Lord. It is the Lord himself. What's so significant about this construction is we see almost the identical construction, except there's a demonstrative pronoun, in Acts 111. Write down Acts 111, because in Acts 111, the angels, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This same Jesus is coming back in like manner. And how did he ascend? Well, bodily. Okay, And so a very similar grammatical construction is used. The reason why that's important is because when the Lord comes, he's coming bodily. And anything else, if we say that he's coming or he can be here spiritually, and that's called parousia, then you and I can argue that right now we're in the parousia. Okay? That is equivocation. That is not how parousia is used, referring to the eschatological coming of the Lord. Okay? Now, let me show you again what Alan Kirshner says on his website. He says, I list 20 reasons why Jesus and Paul teach on the same singular future parousia, this is the position of the pre-wrath rapture. I want you to remember that he has locked them into a same and singular. They have one parousia, and we're going to hold it against them, okay, in, in a loving Christian way, okay? All right? We're going to hold that against them. Now, I'm going to show you another definition, again, by Marv Rosenthal in his book on pre-wrath. He writes this. He says, it means a coming and continued presence, talking about parousia. Now, Do you see where I have it highlighted in red? That is the definition of parousia according to the pre-wrath church or the pre-wrath movement. Okay, That's what you want to write down or make a note of. That is their definition of parousia. It always means coming with continued presence. Rosenthal continues. He says that would be contradicted by the concept of coming at the beginning of the 70th week and another at its end as pre-tribulation is often taught. Yes, we as pre-trib believers must maintain that there are two parousias. And I will show you that we have warrant to do so. We don't do it lightly. Obviously, you would like to hold to one parousia because you would just it would be consistent. However, I'm going to show you, based on the evidence from the scriptures, we believe that there are going to be two bodily parousias, but we're consistent in the definition because in both the parousias at the beginning of the 70th week and at the end of the 70th week, Jesus is coming bodily, one to rapture the church and one to judge his enemies with the church. Are you with me? But we're consistent in the definition. Okay? Let me show you how they're not consistent. I'm going to be focusing in on this slide 
on the last three and a half years. Okay, so this is the midpoint of the tribulation period of the 70th week, and it extends out to the end of the 70th week. And these two little marks here are the 1,290 days, again alluded to in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, and the 1,335 days that extend beyond the midpoint. Again, not very much is said in Scripture, only Daniel 12 on these two phases of time, and yet the pre-wrath rapture view builds a lot of theology, I think, into that. Now, remember, the pre-wrath rapture believes that somewhere in this three-and-a-half-year period is going to be the one parousia. Okay, that's when it'll happen, and that's their idea of imminence. It happens somewhere, you don't know when, in this three-and-a-half-year period. So let's, for the sake of argument, say the parousia happens here. Okay, there the church is caught up to meet with the Lord. Then what they claim is that somehow Christ is spiritually present, and this is all considered parousia. Okay? This is all considered part of the parousia in here because Christ is spiritually present. Now, again, I'm claiming, and I think it's obvious or logic, that that's equivocation. But let me show you a passage that I think does real damage to them, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, where Paul writes, he says, And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of of his coming. You see this term appearance, epiphania? It, that's where we get our term epiphany from. It's used in Acts 27:20, where Paul is on the way to Rome and he is concerned because remember the, they had such storms that he said that the stars had not appeared. It has to do with the appearance or manifestation of something that was hidden. Why is that important? Well, because it shows that this is a physical thing because Jesus will actually be seen at his parousia. Okay? Now, this term, there's a, a cognate or a very similar verb called phanerao that's used in 1 John 3, 2, where John writes, he says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This, again, is a reference to his parousia. The, way, the only way we can see him as he is is if he comes bodily. Are you with me? So that informs our definition of parousia. That means this does not wash. This is not part of the eschatological parousia because this is a spiritual presence. He has to come physically. Otherwise, you and I can say again that you and I are living in the parousia now. Okay. Now, because they're locked in now to this one parousia, as they've admitted to in their own works, what happens is this provides a contradiction that is irreconcilable. Why? Well, because according to Revelation 13.5, the beast reigns for 42 months from the midpoint here all the way into the end of the 70th week. And yet they only have one parousia, and this is equivocation. So now how is that the Antichrist, if he's destroyed here, which by the... See, let me remind you, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says that. and says, and then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay. Do you see that? Well, if that's at the parousia and they only have one, he's slain right here. Then how can he continue to reign the 42 months as the scriptures declare that he will? That's an irreconcilable contradiction. So what they try to do, Robert Van Campen says, well, this slay, which is anale in the Greek, it's a verb. He says that can mean also to remove from power. The problem with that is in the Septuagint, in Isaiah 11.4, the very same verb is used, anale, okay? And what it means there is the slaying of the wicked from the lips, the breath of the mouth of the root of Jesse. Paul is, in fact, borrowing from that very term. In fact, that to me is devastating because that proves to me that that slaying is the destruction of the Antichrist. He is destroyed at the parousia. And if you only have one parousia and it's here and you're not allowed equivocation, well, then he had to be destroyed here. Well, of course, they don't believe that. Now, 
Another problem with the pre-wrath view is that, remember, they've taken the pre-trib view to task by saying you and I believe in two parousias if you hold to the pre-trib view as I do. Well, in fact, I'm going to show you that they actually have four parousias, that is, four comings of the Lord bodily. In fact, you have a second one where Israel is saved and they believe Jesus descends bodily. Okay? And then we're at the reclamation period. They believe during the sixth day of the reclamation period, according to Robert Van Campen, Jesus ascends into heaven and then he comes down at the Battle of Armageddon here and it is here that he destroys the Antichrist. So here they believe Antichrist is kind of handcuffed. His authority is taken away. But here is where they believe that he's destroyed. Well, what about whatever happened to Revelation 13.5 that says that he would reign for 42 months? That's jettisoned and I'll show you why they do that. Okay, Then what we have happen is Jesus comes to receive the rule from the Father in heaven, so he has to ascend again, and then he descends bodily again to start the millennial kingdom. Now, remember, they've taken us to task for having two parousias, but count them up with me. They have one, two, three, four. So Jesus descends four times. Okay. Now, they've got another problem, because according to page 296 of Robert Van Campen's book, he believes that the church will always be with Christ, yet he also maintains that the church will only descend with Christ at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Well, that means that Jesus has been ascending and descending here without the church. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, we as the church who are raptured to meet Christ in the air will always be with the Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? But this view leaves the church unattended several times by Christ. Okay, so there's another contradiction. So, friends, there's many contradictions just because of this pre-wrath equivocation on the definition of parousia. Okay? Now, the second one, this is, to me, the most powerful contradiction. Bob actually came up with this at 4 in the morning on a beach in Mexico. And I was saying... (laughs) (laughs) That just goes to show you, I think, if Bob had more time on the beach... We may have cold fusion. The Mideast peace process could be uh, solved. And <laughs> we just need to get you rested up, Bob. <laughs> so I want to give him full credit for this. This is ingenious, and I think this is... Um, and again, we're just wrestling. Do they have a case or not? Well, let me show you the problem that we have here. In Revelations, I'm going to line up three scriptures for you. In Revelation 6, 10 through 11, we have martyrs in the fifth seal that cry out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Well, then according to the pre-wrath scheme, their view is that the rapture happens in Revelation 7.14. That is the rapture of the church. Okay, And there will be no more saints after this point because that is when the day of the Lord's wrath is poured out and they believe that the Lord will never pour out his wrath on any of the believers. And therefore, there can be no believers after that point. The problem is in Revelation 20, verse 4, we have tribulation saints raised. And so remember, we can't have any saints after Revelation 7 to 14, but we do have them according to Revelation 20, verse 4. So let me give you a hypothetical syllogism for you logic buffs out there. That's an if-then statement. If the pre-wrath rapture is true, then there can't be martyrs after Revelation 7, 14. I'm going to deny the consequent. Okay, so that means I'm going to end up affirming this because a double negative is affirmative. Revelation 20, verse 4 proves there are martyrs after Revelation 7:14. Therefore, the pre-wrath rapture is not true. 
Okay, now, for those of you who don't like logic, let me show you pictorially. Okay, and I'm actually going to use Ryan's book. Ryan writes in his book, The Parable of the Fig Tree, he talks about the fifth seal in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And remember, in the fifth seal, you have dead martyrs because of their testimony of Christ, and they cry out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Right? And what Ryan is commenting on is the divine response given to them. He says this, quote, The divine response is that once the last martyr gives his life, the Lord will begin a systematic fiery wrath upon the wicked world. Now let me show you the contradiction here. Remember, the fifth seal happens in the pre-wrath scheme just inside the midpoint of the tribulation. Okay? Right inside the great tribulation. Now, the rapture, according to the pre-wrath view, happens between the sixth and seventh seal according to Revelation 7.14 in their view. That is where the church is raptured. That is the, the time right here, this rapture, is where the last martyr will be given, according to the pre-wrath view. And what happens here is that the day of the Lord's wrath starts and it extends all the way to the 1335th day. Okay, Therefore, there can be no longer any martyrs or any saints in this time period. Okay, According to the pre-wrath view, there can be no believers here. But what happens is we see in Revelation 20, verse 4, that tribulation saints are raised at the end of the 70th week. So, therefore, there must be believers here, and yet the pre-wrath is saying there is none. Friends, that's devastating, and to me that proves that the view cannot be true. Now, one way that Robert Van Campen tried to get around this was to say, well, the fifth seal martyrs are actually the ones that are raised here at Revelation 20, verse 4. The problem with that is that the rapture occurs here. And all of the saints, whether old or New Testament saints, are going to have to be raptured at the rapture, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. Yeah, 15. I actually was discussing this with Brian over lunch. And yeah. You really can't say anything like that because it says the dead in Christ will rise first. That's right. And the, and the martyrs are the dead in Christ. And if you said that the dead in, some of the dead in Christ will rise, it doesn't give the comfort that Paul wanted to give to the Thessalonians. Amen. Because yeah. he wanted them to know that all the dead in Christ are right. So it really creates a contradiction that I just can't see there's any way around. I, I agree, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's, that's, Bob came up with that on the beach. So, <laughs> Bob, well done. I, again, I think that is, to me, I don't see a way around that. Perhaps there is, and we're just ignorant of it, but I don't see a way around it. So that's another devastating contradiction, I think, to the pre-wrath view. Let me give you a third one. And the contradiction is in its usage of Revelation 7.14, but I should have put on the slide, it's really a contradiction between Revelation 7.14 and Matthew 24. Okay, so maybe put that in your notes. That was kind of a mislabeled thing there. Again, let me just remind you that in Revelation 7.14, this is a pre-wrath rapture text. This is synonymous, what's happening in their view, what's happening in Revelation 7.13 through 14 is synonymous with what's happening in Matthew 24, also in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 16. Okay, now, what must happen, therefore, in this text is that the saints must be being raptured here. If they are, in fact, being martyred rather than being raptured, again, the pre-wrath view is done. Okay, what I'm going to show you is that the best evidence shows that these people are being martyred. That's how they are coming out of the Great Tribulation. They're not being raptured. Okay, let me read the text. Revelation 7, 13 through 14 says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. 
And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. First of all, notice here in the red, the ones who come out, this is a participle. It's a present tense participle, erkamenoi, and then the preposition is ek. That's important because the present tense participle indicates more than likely ongoing continuous action. Why is that important? Because if it was the rapture, you would expect that it would come, they would all come out as a lump sum. But the present tense participle seems to be indicating, friends, and I'll be arguing later on in the weeks to come why this is the case, that they're coming out as um, progressively or continuously, are you with me? As they would if they're being killed off. Okay. What's more is I'm going to focus in on the preposition ek and show you how that functions. Notice, too, that they're coming out of the Great Tribulation. Now, let me show you pictorially why this is significant. In my diagram here, what I have is the timing of the last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation. The reason why I put a circle here is I want you to think of the Great Tribulation also as an event. Okay, because what Revelation 7:14 is saying is it's talking about these saints coming out from the midst of the great tribulation. That is how the Greek preposition ek functions. Even Robert Van Campen admits that ek functions typically as something that comes from in to without or from the midst of outside when it's dealing with verbs of motion. Erkamai is a verb of motion. Sometimes you're going to see ek is adjacent to a verb of protection like tereo. Then it can mean protection from. But when it's dealing with verbs of motion, it typically means coming out from the midst of. Are you with me? You'll, you'll see in a minute why this is important. Okay. Now, remember, this, this means they're coming out from the midst of the Great Tribulation. Had John wanted to indicate that this, in fact, was the rapture of all the saints from the beginning of time, a better choice that he could have made would have been dia, because that preposition indicates through the tribulation. Why would that be better? Because remember, friends, this is the great tribulation period right here. 99.9% of all the saints would have died prior to that time. Are you with me? So what's being referred to here is just those saints that are in the presence of the great tribulation. So certainly if John had wanted to indicate that this was the rapture of all of the saints, of all of the ages, he would have been better suited to use dia. Now, let me show you the contradiction. In Matthew 24, 29 through 30, Jesus writes, he says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Notice the preposition that Matthew chooses here that Jesus is saying. It, it talks about after, okay? And that is meta. And meta is always used typically as a temporal reference in timing indications. So that would mean that it would have to come after the tribulation period. Well, now do you, do you see the discrepancy? The discrepancy is, is that in the view of Revelation 7.14, these saints are coming out from the midst of the tribulation, whereas what Jesus is saying is that they immediately come, um, that is, the Son of Man will appear immediately after the tribulation. Is that clear? Does that all make sense? I've got some confused looks. Okay. Okay. So let me, did I read this text? But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Again, 
what the pre-wrath side is saying is that this text is a rapture text just like Revelation 7.14. Yet in Revelation 7.14, the saints are coming out from the midst of the Great Tribulation, whereas what's being talked about here in Matthew 24 happens after the time of the Great Tribulation. Okay, why? Well, because this is where Jesus comes and he judges the nations at the end of the 70th week. That's why it happens after the Tribulation. And that's why, again, we affirm that there is a parousia at the end of the 70th week. Jesus comes bodily. That is the day of the Lord par excellence where he judges the enemies, fights for Israel as a warrior does in the day of battle. So again, friends, I think that that's an irreconcilable contradiction. We'll talk more about this quotation here, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. I'm going to be laying out before you how the day of the Lord works. And there's a big discrepancy between the pre-wrath and the pre-trib understanding on that. Now, finally, the fourth fallacy here, or the fourth contradiction is the fallacy of the false dilemma. And what I'm going to show you is, remember, the pre-wrath view, they must have the great tribulation and the day of the Lord all fit within the last three and a half years. Because remember, they don't believe that there's any of God's wrath during the great tribulation. So in order to fit both of those periods in there without any overlap, because they can't overlap, they have to say that the great tribulation period is cut short. It's shorter than the 42 months. So where do they get that from? Well, they get it from Matthew 24, 21 through 22, where Jesus says this. He says, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days had been cut short. And the term can literally mean to be amputated. Okay, To be cut short, no life would have been saved. Now, why do I call this the fallacy of the false dilemma? The fallacy of the false dilemma works in this way. I give you a problem, but I only give you one solution to it. When, in fact, there may be multiple solutions to that problem. Okay. In other words, notice Jesus does not say how long the Great Tribulation was, nor does he say what it's being cut down to. All we know is that repeatedly through the scriptures, it's constantly referred to as 42 months. Perhaps it initially was going to be 10 years, but yet it was cut down to 42 months. Are you, are you seeing what I'm saying? So in other words, the only option given to us is not that it will be less than 42 months. That is merely assumed by the pre-wrath position in order for their scheme to fit. Now, again, if, in fact, the scriptures are true and we don't have contradictions within the scriptures, which is what I believe, we have to heed the clear teaching of the scriptures that claim that the Great Tribulation will be three and a half years. Daniel 7.25, talking about the Antichrist, says he... That is, the Antichrist will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Well, friends, that's three and a half years. Well, we see the same thing in Revelation 11.2 and also in Revelation 13.5, where John writes, There was given to him, that is, Antichrist, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So again, you have to say, well, John didn't mean that. He's just throwing it out there and it'll somehow be cut short. What I'm saying is the best way to understand what is cut short and how that is interpreted in Matthew 24:21 is that it was cut short to 42 months. Because repeatedly it's referred, and remember, Revelation is written some, what, 40 years after 
the time of Matthew. Friends, the scriptures do not contradict themselves. Why is the Great Tribulation period repeatedly called 42 months? Why does the Antichrist, why is it always stated that he will reign for 42 months? Why? Because the Great Tribulation period lasts that long. Okay? So, friends, finally, to me, that's the final contradiction that seals it for me. I don't believe that the pre-wrath view has the evidence to support their contention that the, the rapture of the church will happen sometime during the last three and a half years and there will be no wrath prior to that point. So again, Bob and I were not trying to just be contrarians. We would have gladly accepted the view had it had merit to it, in our opinion. Again, maybe it's our ignorance. And again, we have no dog in the race or cart in the show or whatever you want to say. If the evidence goes some other way, we'll go that way. But what ironically, what Bob and I were saying is we looked at each other one day and we said it's ironic. The more we've studied, the more the pre-trib view has borne fruit and looked better and better. So anyway, I, to my pre-wrath brothers and sisters, again, we don't want to divide with you. And if, you, if you're not convinced by my evidence, so be it. You're still, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're all right in my book. Okay, uh, Bob. Just to emphasize what you just said, I've been friends with Ryan for, for yeah. 10 years, and he's always believed this. And at first, I looked at Second Thessalonians 2, and I thought he had some good points. Yep. And it was enough for me to become sort of uh, on the fence. Yeah. Okay. And, in fact, he called me a rapture agnostic at one point. <laughs> 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 and then one time Nick asked me to, if I wanted to debate Ryan, and I said, well, I'm not so sure I'm right and he's wrong. Sure, yep, right. But when we embarked on this study, yeah, I right. just started to look at all of the evidence and really dig into it, which is something I pro- never really intended to do, but yeah, exactly. I'm glad we did. Yeah, that's right. I learned a lot. And I'm really grateful for that, too. And I know you are. Because and so, yeah, so what's happened is it's just, it seems like there's less problems with the pre-trib view. Right, that's right. In fact, Second Thessalonians 2, that is a text that I thought had great merit on the pre-wrath side, but I actually wrote a paper, and it'll be coming out at some point. I don't... Did you... Um, I gave it to Jesse to put it on the web, but you put so much formatting into it, it's going to be a nightmare for her to get it into HTML. Poor gal, she's pregnant, too. Apologize (laughs) for me. Smooth things over for me. People that have to make all these charts. Yeah, I know. I love charts for some reason. Yeah. But my paper will be about 2 Thessalonians 2 and many other things, but we'll be addressing 2 Thessalonians 2 in this course. Okay, now let me just finish by saying where we're going to be going. Our goal in this study will be this. We want to help you put together the theological frameworks so that you can understand God's eternal promises on a deeper level. No matter if you're pre-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, mid-trib, we want to help you understand the promises of God at a deeper level. We want to help you become aware of the exegetical issues involved in the various eschatological texts. That's one neat thing about getting into debates like this, wrestling with the text. You start to become aware of what the issues are. So as we progress through the study, I'm going to be showing you periodically, well, this is how pre-wrath understands it, well, this is how post-trib understands it, and who has the better take, and wrestle, and I'll be giving you the evidence that obviously that I come down with, but you'll at least be more aware of the exegetical issues at stake. And you'll be able to say, I don't know if Eric's right on that. You know what I mean? You'll be able to wrestle with it, and you'll be able to come down on one side or the other for yourself. And finally, we want to show the plausibility of the premillennial, pre-tribulational viewpoint. Okay, so that's what we want to gain in the study. Now, next time we gather together, we're going to be looking at the promise of the Davidic kingdom and also the inclusion of the Gentiles into that Davidic kingdom and the implications for Matthew 24 and Revelation. Now, I thought I would be able to also get into Daniel chapters 2, 7, and 9. I don't think that that's going to happen unless 
I have an epiphany <laughs> and something goes, because I just have too many slides already. I just don't think we can get into it. So that might have to be next time. But my goal was to get into Daniel and then see implications for Matthew 24 and Revelation. So we'll get as far as we can get. That'll be next Thursday. I will talk to my wife and find out and talk to my fellas here about Tuesdays. And I'm sorry, we've had a scheduling conflict which came up. And I just wanted to let you guys know the first night that way you can maybe make arrangements or start thinking about that, and I apologize for that. So with that, let me take any um, questions or comments that you have. Jim. As I understand what you said, the people who believe in the pre-wrath rapture believe that the rapture occurs in Revelation 7.14? That's correct. That's a, that would be a, a rapture text. Yep, and that would well, be... That syn- refers to the people who come out of the Great Tribulation. What happens to all the saints that live before then? Well, that was kind of one of my points, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. And we'll be talking more about that text. Yeah, Mike. The pre-wrath uh, position says that um, in 1 Thessalonians 4 that all that are alive at this time are in the tribulation. They are all taken up with those who have died in Christ prior to that time. Right. They're all taken up together. And those that are dead are first raised to life. Mm-hmm so that they are alive on the earth and then transformed, brought up into the air with those who are on the earth at that time. So subsequently, all are raised and taken up during this time, which is in the Great Tribulation. Right. Yep. That's how I understand it, too, as far as the pre-wrath. Thanks, Mike. Just have a question. Do you yeah. at any point get into, I guess it's Ezekiel 38, 39, Gog, Magog? Yeah, we'll be talking about that. I don't know when I'm going to fit that in. It might be when I talk about Revelation chapter 20 in the discussion there. It also might be when I talk about the Millennial Kingdom. I'm not sure how I'm going to fit that in. But yeah, we'll be talking about that, I'm sure. And that's, again, friends, I don't know how many weeks this is going to take because I'm still writing PowerPoints, and I just don't know. It's... It's hard because there's so much material to get we into. Got to so. For the 4th of July holiday? Yeah, yeah, we got a break for that. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Um, I just wanted to make a quick comment, and maybe this is something you were going to bring up, yeah. Eric, but when you said the pre-wrath position holds that Jesus' second coming is spiritual and not physical? Well, I was quoting Marvin Rosenthal. Okay. Um, again, what? I don't think that, I, to be honest with Mike, not all pre-wrathers believe that, right? Because I know that they believe typically that, He's in a bodily form. That's what I thought because I think Rosenthal, that's why I didn't, I think Rosenthal is an anomaly on that. Okay. And that's one thing is beware. Remember, not all pre-trib people believe, have the same ideas about things and neither do the pre-rathers. So don't, yeah, exactly. But there are some, there are some things obviously that we all, obviously the rapture happens before the tribulation period. If you don't hold to that view, you're not a pre-trib by definition. The same thing with the pre-rath. They, by definition, have to have the rapture in the last three and a half years. But they don't all have the identical view on things like that. So to clarify, I think most pre-rathers, except for Marv Rosenthal, believe that Jesus bodily descends for his church when he raptures them. For instance, in First Thessalonians 4. Yeah. Okay, that makes yeah. more sense. Because yeah. when you said that, I thought, well, then how in Zechariah 12:10 it says, how can Israel, I mean, how will look on Israel whom look on whom, yeah. whom they pierced? Right, yeah. No, that's a good catch. And, yeah, I, don't, I think that's an anomaly just with Marv, yeah, Rosenthal. And, and in fact, later he says that they believe, he contradicts himself because he actually says later in that book that Jesus does physically come. And I, so anyway, he, yeah, that's not a view that most of them hold. So, yeah. 
I got a question for pre-trib. Um, All right. When does the uh, apostasy occur or the great rebellion? Yeah. Yeah, we'll be getting into that. We we believe that that happens in the beginning of the 70th week, right before the 70th week. Yeah. And, and we believe that the apostasy, it's interesting. After the 70th week has started or? Before. Before the 70th right. week. Yeah, and the reason why, it's interesting. F.F. F. Bruce has done a lot of good work on the apostasy, and he makes a good case that the apostasy, the way that it's used, is in reference to not so much the forsaking of Israel against their God because they're living in apostasy now. There'd be nothing new under the sun, right? But it's the apostasy against the rule of God that is law. Because what is going to function, God uses law as the restraining influence in the world, and what is going to happen is that the restrainer will be removed, allowing the world to gather all of the nations just as they wanted to in Genesis 11, and they will gather a one-world order that will try to usurp God's authority. And so that is what we believe the apostasy is in reference to, and it happens in the beginning uh, before the 70th week begins. Is the apostasy recognizable by Christians? I think it will be because when you see one government, like we've all been fearing, maybe happening. (laughs) So the apostasy will be happening. Yeah. Will the church be able to recognize it? I would assume so, yeah. Yeah. So the apostasy has to happen first, and the ch- and the church would recognize that. Yeah. And then what? They are raptured on. Yeah, I would say what the the discussion in Second Thessalonians is related to the day of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is both the pre-wrath and the pre-trib camp. What they believe is that the day of the Lord immediately follows the rapture. The distinction is when does the rapture happen and therefore the day of the Lord begin? At the beginning of the 70th week or in the last three and a half years? Okay, okay but, but you said the church would, would see the apostasy, right? Right, right. I th- that's exactly right. It would happen first. Okay. And so the, the, the so cur- then how, how, do you, how do you say that the pre-trib rapture, how do you defend imminency if this apostasy has well, to I, happen? The, the, the point is, is this can happen very rapidly. It could happen very rapidly. Yeah, I think both the rapture and the apostasy happen almost at the same time. Every follow up that Bruce's. Yeah, I mean, it could happen very quickly. Okay, so you're defining the apostasy as not a falling away from the faith. Well, I, what I'm doing is I'm critiquing pre-wrath's understanding is the apostasy is in reference to apostate Israel. The problem is, is apostate Israel has been apostasy all this time, what would be new under the sun? What I'm saying is the best evidence seems to be indicating that the apostasy, and it's used, and I'll show you the evidence that I've gotten from Bruce and other scholars, that the apostasy is a recognized term that had to do with forsaking God's lawmakers, if you will, or the civil government, and it's, it has a recognized use in Hellenistic Greek and also other Greek writings. So that's what I'll be making the case for. Yeah. So the apostasy isn't a falling away from the faith or nominal it, it, it Christians. It could be. That's another option. I, I'm not sure, but I would I would tend to go with the idea. Again, nobody knows for sure, and it's interesting because... So we don't even know what the apostasy is. It's, that's well, right, and, and you're in the dark as much as I am. The point being is that it's not clearly defined, and that's the problem. But the point is, is for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord starts while people are saying peace and safety. Now, the problem with the pre-wrath view is that if the day of the Lord starts while people are saying peace and safety, and remember the audience, Mike, in 1 Thessalonians 5 is the Gentile Christians primarily, although there would be some Jews in there as well. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, 1, 
It says that while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them, that would be better suited in the pre-trib camp because, remember, the fourth seal, we lose a quarter of the earth's population, according to Revelation 6.8. Well, how would people be crying out peace and safety? Okay. Well, it's hard to take yeah. it back. <laughs> we were on the phone reading F.F. Bruce. Yeah. And see, why that clicks for me is I've claimed for years that the removal of multiple civil governments is the removal of the restrainer because it opens the way for a one-world system. And the word apostasy is only used twice in the New Testament, okay? It's a very rare term. And so within the range of meaning in Jewish-Greek writings, such as Josephus in their testamental literature, there are a number of times it's used for rebellion against civil law, a departing from the rule of law. So... If the removal of the restrainer is removal of multiple civil governments, the apostasy would be a worldwide rebellion against the system God set up when he divided out the nations. It's, it's, it, we, we can't be asked sure, but it sure makes sense to me. Okay. Well, if, if the Antichrist doesn't uh, receive his power until the midpoint, then it doesn't seem to me that there's going to be a world wide government until that point. I, I disagree, and I'll tell you why. In Revelation 6, 1 through 2, the first thing that's depicted is in the first seal that a rider goes out and he peacefully conquers. What's interesting to me is that coincides nicely with 1 Thessalonians 5, which says while they're saying peace and safety, because in the first seal you have peace and safety, and then war gradually builds as the nations, I think, become wise to what's going on. So the, the, the point but, being... But, but the Antichrist yeah. is given... Uh, authority for 42 months. You said that. That's right. That's right. From the and this authority on. to rule yep. is for 42 months. Sure. And in chapter 13 of Revelation, it says that uh, the whole world will worship him. Yep. Now, yep. before that time in um, Daniel 11, he goes out and he fights the king of the uh, north and the king of the south. Yeah. And so it doesn't appear that he has global, worldwide rule uh, for a time. Okay. But then he comes back and he sets up his tent at the holy mountain. And at that point, or somewhere in there, he sets himself up in the temple, and that's the beginning of his 42 months of authority. Would you not agree with that? Yeah, we agree on that. That's something that we all agree on, that the Great Tribulation starts at the midpoint. Yep. Yeah. Even though this restrainer is removed, because you have the ten kings that give him authority, you have the, the white, uh, the guy on the horse conquering. So obviously there's a process that leads up to the 42 months. Yeah. It's a whole different world than it was before. But, but obviously... This one-world government, if there's all these wars and rumors of wars, there mm -hmm. isn't one-world government or we'd have the one-world government fighting against itself. Yeah. So well, there's, there's contradictions in that, too. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's... Let me, let me just turn, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's just turn all of us together because let me just point something out that I think lends nicely to the discussion here. 1 Thessalonians 5 starts off with now as to times. And by the way, there's an interesting what's called a peri-day construction. Bob has done a lot of good work on this, and we're going to be talking about this 
it's usually a, a shift, a slight shift in emphasis from one topic to another, and I'll explain the significance of that later. But it says, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Now listen, listen to this. as like labor pains upon a woman with child. The term there is Odin in the Greek. Now turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, I'm going to start in verse 4. Jesus says this, this is, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famine and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. That same term is used there, Odin, and even the pre-wrath scholars believe that everything in Matthew 24, 8 and prior has to do with the tribulation period that is the first three and a half years. Okay, Why is that significant? Well, because they don't believe that the day of the Lord can start then. But yet there's a connection to 1 Thessalonians 5 where it says the day of the Lord. And that same term, Odin, is used. In fact, Odin is used talking about labor pains in Isaiah 66, 7, Isaiah 27, 13, Isaiah 13, 8, I believe. It's also it's all used all over the Old Testament. There's the concept of labor pains is also talked about during in Jeremiah 30, talking about Jacob's time of distress. And so this ends up being a technical term used talking about how these birth pangs will come about. Now, remember, friends, the imagery here of birth pangs is that I've just had a baby recently, not me, my wife. She gets the credit. But remember, the idea is that you're pregnant the whole time. But it's at some point the birth pangs come on. And whether they're small or they're great, you're in labor and you have to go through it. In the imagery there is that Israel would be born a great nation for Yahweh, but they first had to go through Odin in the Greek. They had to go through these labor pains. And so what's interesting is those labor pains we know start, according to Matthew 24, 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, at the beginning of the tribulation, not in the middle. And therefore, and I'll be making the case that we see God's wrath, in fact, present during the entire tribulation period. In fact, Revelation 6, 8 uses Ezekiel discussions like famine, sword, beasts, and... Um, one other item to kill people. And those items are used in Ezekiel for God's wrath upon Israel. And they're also used in the fourth seal. Now, why were they wrath against Israel? And now they're not wrath against the world. To me, that's special pleading. Because remember, pre-wrath is saying that there's no wrath until the day of the Lord. I don't know if that makes sense. But anyway, I just wanted to show you some of those connections. We'll be dealing with all of this in the future. And then you'll be able to write and I'll have slides and so forth. Yeah. So, Mike, I don't know, does that help clarify kind of our view on... It's not convincing to me. Okay. (laughs) But you're a contrarian, right? (laughs) We got one minute. So, anything anybody wants on the record? (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah.